It's the Media Buzz Meter with Howard Kurtz. Ladies, if you can't figure out what kind of sports bras to wear, the New York Times has you covered. You know, I've been talking about this new wire cutter feature that the Times runs on. It rates all kinds of products, and I'm sure it's a perfectly good public service. But just every once in a while, whether it's, you know, household detergent or something, uh, I look at what they put on the homepage, and it's like, I never thought I'd be seeing the New York Times recognizing, hey, these are the best sports bras. This, by the way, is a subject on which I have uh, zero expertise. Um, also, you know, I've been talking a little bit ever since I did this on-air tribute to the late Ed Asner of Lou Grant fame. I've kind of gotten a little bit hooked on going back and looking at some of the old episodes which are on YouTube. So today, for example, uh, I saw one where the reporter Billy, the female Billy, of course, uh, is at a press conference and all of the reporters are there and she doesn't realize that they're all going to run to the phones to uh, let their newsrooms know about the news about uh, a kidnapping. And the, the, the veteran reporters have all stashed these phones. And one is in an icebox, one is in a cabinet. You know, in other words, this is the 1970s, no cell phones. Nobody has cell phones. And I can actually remember being at a courthouse in New York where there was literally... I was covering a major trial, waiting for a verdict. There was literally like one payphone in the newsroom, in the press room there. And I ran to it and I had to dictate the story. And I was sort of like, my body was twisted over a desk because it was the only way I could get to that phone, which was behind a bunch of desks. The, the regular New York reporters had desk phones on their desk, but I, as the out-of-town reporter, did not. Anyway, uh, different era, shall we say. Hey, you know, we talk a lot about Substack. Uh, where a lot of big-name writers have been leaving places like the New York Times, uh, Glenn Greenwald, Barry Weiss, uh, Matt Taibbi, and others to make a lot of money at Substack. Well, now Substack is using what's being referred to here as uh, the equivalent of Netflix money to lure um, writers and artists who work for Marvel Comics or DC to join Substack. Uh, they are paying for names, according to the story that I saw. They have deep pockets. Uh, so it's interesting because obviously that's a lucrative franchise. And anybody who's listened to me over the years know I'm a comic book fanatic. I grew up reading comic books. I grew up drawing comic books. So the idea that there is this third force that could actually lure away the stars of today when it comes to Marvel and DC Comics is just fascinating to me, and I'm going to keep an eye on that. All right, we got a lot of ground to cover here. Let's start with number one. And if there is a slight hint of a silver lining on COVID-19 and this Delta variant, which has been surging for many weeks now, it is that, you know, I keep an eye like a hawk on the total number of new cases, average number of new cases every day. And, it, I mean, you know, I've talked about this before. It started at 10,000, 20,000, got up to a peak of about 166,000 average new cases per day. Now that's come down a little bit. Uh, yesterday's number was 148,000 new cases a day. Still really high and much higher than it had been a few short months ago, but a little bit down from the peak. Now maybe that's a blip, or maybe it shows that the Delta surge has peaked, and I certainly hope so. President Biden giving a big speech uh, today, and early reports from CNN and others are that the president will sign an executive order. He's got a whole bunch of things he's going to do. He's calling for a global summit and so forth. I mean, sure, that'll do a lot. But he's going to sign an executive order requiring all 
federal workers to be vaccinated and not have this sort of escape route, this option where if you don't want the vaccine, you can opt to be regularly tested instead, according to sources. We'll see if that holds up. But if that's the case, and it sounds right, because, you know, this is overwhelming the White House, which is already, uh, you know, deeply on the defensive over the Afghanistan war and the president's is now underwater in the polls, down in the mid-40s, whereas he had been in the uh, low to mid-50s in terms of approval. Um, If this is the case, if he has the power to do this, I mean, it's already was was happening with the Defense Department and with the VA, maybe certain other agencies, then why didn't he do it weeks ago? Why did he wait? Uh, Maybe if he had done this weeks ago, You know, and and you know the answer. The answer is he didn't want to take the political flack for infringing on the liberty of people who happen to work for the federal government who, for whatever reason, don't want to get the vaccine. He obviously is going to urge more local governments and businesses to go the mandate route. Uh, And but, you know, he has no power there. It's purely the power of persuasion. But obviously he does have power over the what, nearly three million federal workers Um, Now, that in and of itself isn't going to move the needle all that much when you've got 80 million Americans who haven't been vaccinated for whatever reason, hesitant, refusing, political, haven't had a chance, worried about the side effects, whatever. But it certainly sends a strong signal. Now, The Atlantic has a big piece about how I guess there's no other way to put it, how Biden lost this round, and it's a pretty significant round, against the coronavirus. And it starts out by saying this, Joe Biden's mission accomplished moment came on the 4th of July. Of course, that conjuring up George W. Bush landing on the aircraft, mission accomplished banner, uh, essentially saying we had won the Iraq war, and boy, did that turn out to be premature, to put it diplomatically. So it was on July 4th where he had a big party at the White House. There were a lot of guests without masks. They were drinking beer and eating pulled pork on the South Lawn. And Biden said, thanks to our heroic vaccine effort, we've gained the upper hand against this virus. And that was a reasonable snapshot at the time. He went on, President went on to say, we can live our lives. Our kids go back to school. So he was really declaring victory. Uh, When he took office, more than 3,000 people a day were dying from covid The death toll in early July, about 200 a day. But within days of that speech on Independence Day, the Delta variant will become the dominant strain in the U.S. If trends persist, this is according to this Atlantic piece, 116,000 more people will die from the virus from the end of August uh, and the beginning of December. That would be an average of 1,230 people a day. Now, obviously, we don't know exactly that would be the figure. But new infections, as I said, have been climbing steadily since that, since Biden said, we've declared our independence from the deadly virus as much as we declared our independence from a distant king. And then all, and then you get into the mixed messaging, which I think is the, the nails the point about people perhaps losing confidence in the administration. Like, no president, Donald Trump couldn't do it, Joe Biden couldn't do it, Superman couldn't do it, could completely stop this global pandemic. But you had this moment in March when the head of the CDC, Rochelle Walensky, said she had a feeling of impending doom. But then in May, the CDC said, hey, vaccinated people, you don't have to wear masks outside in many or most settings. Then came the end of July. 
And this was the total U-turn that I thought really cost the CDC a lot of credibility. On July 27th, the Centers for Disease Control said people who are vaccinated should start wearing masks again. Even outside, as I recall. Start wearing masks again, certainly indoors and maybe in certain outdoor settings. August 18th, Biden announced a plan to give booster shots to those who were fully vaccinated. Didn't matter if you got Pfizer. It does matter now because I think only the Pfizer booster has been approved. Moderna has not. J&J is sort of in limbo. And the reason on Moderna I've read is because they can't decide what dosage to give, whether it should be a full dose or a half dose. Make a damn decision. But in any event, Biden gets out a little bit of the scientific agencies and says, we're going to start with the booster shots on September 20th. But then the FDA comes out, the acting FDA commissioner, Janet Woodcock, goes to the White House and says they don't have the data they need to approve a booster program on that timetable. So now the White House is sort of, well, of course, we're going to wait for final approval. So it's been a mess. It's been an absolute mess. Now, inside the White House, the Atlantic says Biden aides have been annoyed with some of the conflicting advice coming from these agencies. Uh, Yeah, Donald Trump was annoyed too. But you can't, you know, if you're going to say we follow the science, you can't just tell the FDA and the CDC what to do. Uh, Here's an unnamed official familiar with the internal conversations. There's been frustration on the part of the White House that messages have been confusing to the American public. Uh, You think? When the CDC or public came out and said, you don't have to wear a mask when you're vaccinated, then said, oops, you better wear a mask indoors. It took the White House by surprise. So they don't even have coordination. I mean, the president shouldn't be telling the CDC and the FDA what to say, but he certainly should know in advance. I mean, you're at least entitled to a heads up if you're the head of the administration. Um, Now, uh, here's a, a member of the advisory board for the White House. Celine Gounder, telling The Atlantic uh, that the White House is caving to anxious Americans who want as many doses of the vaccine as possible because they're fearful of what breakthrough infections could mean. Even though, by the way, the chances of a breakthrough infection are very, very slim. But when it happens, it gets a lot of attention. And if you look at who votes and who their constituency is, that's their constituency. White House official is scoffing at that notion. So the setup for that is, if you kind of think, is it's a broad generalization, of course, but if you kind of think that the unvaccinated, unvaccinated adult population is Trump's base and the vaccinated population is Biden's base, then the White House has to be acutely aware of the fact that the people who are vaccinated and are frustrated by the mixed messages on booster, on mass, on just about everything, are their voters, and they have to make sure their voters feel comfortable. Uh, Interesting piece, by the way, National Review saying, what if COVID is going to be with us forever in some form? What if it's like the flu and it never fully goes away? There are Americans, uh, says the magazine, who willingly lock themselves down and still favor some restrictions. But what if this were to drag on for five years, 10 years, 20 years? Do you want your children to be forced to wear masks throughout their childhoods? Do you want to bail on weddings if some guests may be unvaccinated? Skip future funerals? Ditch Thanksgiving when there's a winter surge? Keep grandparents away from their grandkids whenever there's a new variant spreading? Are you never going to see a movie in a theater again? Those are all pretty good questions. And as National Review puts it, those are not wild scenarios. The Delta variant has led to surges throughout the world, despite vaccines. 
Israel, which has been a model of mass vaccination, has been dealing with a big Delta spike. Uh, this piece goes out to say, look, vaccines are still quite effective at significantly reducing the risk of hospitalization and death. But if the virus continues to adapt and people need to get booster shots every six months or so, it seems there's a good chance the virus will continue to spread for a very long time. So how are we, as individuals and a society, how are we able to adapt to this reality? And I think those are very good questions to ask. Uh, just to tie up this section, um, Howard Stern on his radio show got pretty blunt with people who are refusing to get vaccinated. Uh, I'll clean this up a little bit. When are we going to stop putting up with the idiots in this country and just say it's mandatory to get vaccinated? F them. F their freedom. I want my freedom to live. I want to get out of the house already. I want to go next door and play chess. I want to take some pictures. Go blank yourself. You had the cure and you wouldn't take it. Now, I don't happen to believe that calling people idiots for not getting vaccinated helps persuade them at all. But Howard Stern is Howard Stern. He's going to do what he wants. He's going to say what he wants. And I think, you know, he speaks for a lot of people who are privately saying that they're pissed off at these 80 million Americans who, for whatever reason, won't get the vaccine. Because for all the questions about what this could this last forever and so forth, if we got half of those 80 million people vaccinated, maybe a bit more than half, this thing would largely be over. I mean, the, the virus would have no other way to go. If you add that to the people who've already had COVID and have some natural immunity, it wouldn't disappear, but it'd be a major step forward. All right, story number two. This was bizarre. I mentioned briefly at the top of the podcast yesterday that the last major Confederate monument had come down in Richmond, Virginia. Robert E. Lee, the Confederate general, that statue taken down uh, as part of an agreement by the Virginia government. The governor is on board. The mayor of Richmond is on board. Richmond has something called the Avenue of the Monuments and had all these Confederate generals and leaders. They've all been taken down, and Robert E. Lee was the last one. You know, the only other statue on that avenue is of Arthur Ashe, the African-American tennis player. So Donald Trump put out one of his statements yesterday praising Robert E. Lee, talking about how sad it was that the statue came down. Lee is considered, quote, the greatest strategist of them all, which a lot of people would dispute. Uh, Trump said that Lee would have single-handedly won the Civil War, except for Gettysburg. But uh, come on, that's kind of like saying Napoleon would have been triumphant except for Waterloo. I mean, you could go through the list of historical figures. And he even said, if only we had Robert E. Lee to command our troops in Afghanistan, that disaster would have ended in a complete and total victory many years ago. Really, even, even if Robert E. Lee is this brilliant general, and as I say, there's a reason the South lost, and there's a lot of reasons the South lost. Um, was he be able to overcome Taliban, which basically decided to outlast the U.S. in a 20-year war? So I guess... The former president considers the Confederate hardliners to be part of his base, but this was just, this, let's just say it's getting a lot of attention online. Meanwhile, uh, Trump was on with the Fox's Greg Gutfeld last night. Gutfeld told him that he had lost friends over his pro-Trump comments. Gutfeld used to be very critical of the former president, and he talked about this in the interview, but he has been very complimentary. Uh, at a certain point, he became more complimentary of Trump and his presidency, 
And he said, there was an irrational response to you, and I lost friends when I would defend you. But you also gained friends, said Trump. Yeah, you gained friends, Gutfeld said. I didn't listen to my family members who were voting for you. When I turned and started listening, then I lost all of my other friends. And he asked the president, why did people respond emotionally to you rather than rationally? And Trump said, it must be my personality. And the studio audience uh, laughed. Uh, separately, another uh, uh, Fox News major figure, Chris Wallace, the host of Fox News Sunday, who, by the way, will be on my show a week from this Sunday. He's got a new book out, and we're going to talk about a whole lot of things. He went on Colbert last night uh, to publicize his book, and he was asked about Trump and the stolen election claims. And Wallace said, I've never, be- I've never seen anything like this. Um, he said he believes that most of the lawmakers in Congress, Republicans who are denying that Joe Biden fairly won the election, aren't delusional, but rather, says Wallace, uh, have decided to appease the Trump base and say something you know is not true. Um, and he says when he has people on who have that view, I'm going to hold them to account over and over again about whether they recognize Biden as a legitimately elected president. And I've seen Chris do this. Uh, And here's the killer quote. There are plenty of people who are leaders in the Congress challenging the election that I have just not had on the show ever since then and have purposefully not had on the show because I don't frankly want to hear their crap. But having said that, there are some leaders that you have to have on. Ask them questions. There are people in the leadership and the Senate. I won't let them come on without putting them through the ringer. And that's been a debate. There have been others on other channels who said, I won't have on anybody who believes in the election lie. But what if it's Kevin McCarthy? He's the House Minority Leader. You got to have him on and then you press him. That would be my view as well. Don't go anywhere. More Buzzmeter coming your way in just a moment. All right. Number three, the war in Afghanistan. There is some good news as I'm speaking to you now from the Buzzmeter headquarters. Uh, there is news that the Taliban are saying that uh, a number of jets will take off from the newly reopened Kabul airport and that American passport holders and other foreigners will be able to fly out for the first time since the final, the last U.S. troops left Afghanistan. U.S. officials familiar with the negotiations telling the New York Times about 200 people have been cleared to leave and they included Americans and other third country nationals. Um, an aide, a Taliban spokesman, or an aide to the spokesman, said three flights uh, have landed at the airport. In other words, planes coming to pick up uh, uh, other nationals. They arrived with desperately needed humanitarian aid. So maybe that's the deal. You know, we bring you food and medical supplies. And you let some of our people go. Um, now, he wouldn't say whether Americans or Afghans with dual citizenship would be on those planes. But that's what U.S. sources are saying. At a news conference at Rammstein in Germany yesterday, Tony Blinken said the Taliban are entirely to blame for the inability of charter flights so far to leave another airport at Mazar-Sharif. The Taliban are not permitting the charter flights to depart. They claim some of the passengers do not have the required documentation. While there are limits to what we can do without personnel on the ground, Without an airport with normal security procedures in place, we're going to do everything we can, everything in our power, I should say, to support those flights and get them off the ground. Well, maybe there'd be a bit of a breakthrough now. That would be a welcome relief, especially, look, I've got to say that 
when I read interviews with Americans who couldn't get out, who want to get out, who are worried about their lives, who are worried about their families' lives, who are worried about their kids, it is heartbreaking. And it's equally frustrating and appalling to me that the United States Secretary of State has to say, you know, we're relying on the Taliban to let them go. But that's what happens when you pull out of a war. Again, I'm not saying President Biden didn't make the right decision to pull out, but the way in which he did it, I think anybody who's not a complete and total apologist to the Biden administration would agree was awful. Maybe there was no perfect way to do it. Maybe there was no uh, not messy way to do it. But I can't stomach the fact that we did leave Americans behind. If we can get all of them out, hopefully most of them out as a start, that would be a good thing. And it also is in the Taliban's interest because the country is in a humanitarian crisis. They need foreign aid. They need recognition by other governments. I think it's going to be a long time before the U.S. recognizes the Taliban as the legitimate government of Afghanistan, but it's kind of the only leverage we have. All right, moving on. Number four. This is just a little political flap, but it's interesting. The White House has now pushed out uh, a whole bunch of people, including some prominent Trump administration officials who had been appointed to the boards, to these advisory boards of U.S. military service academies. What happened is the Biden administration yesterday said they got to resign, and if they don't resign, we're going to fire them. Now, being on an advisory board is not the biggest thing in the world. And by the way, there's little question that it was at the very end of the Trump administration that these people were put on the advisory boards. And they include Kellyanne Conway, and they include Sean Spicer, and they include H.R. McMaster. It's the kind of a nice thing you do. Every administration, Democratic and Republican, has done this to give these sort of sinecures to your people on these, you know, it's not like you're appointing them on agencies that run anything. They're advisory boards. And it's also hardly unprecedented in my view, although these uh, folks are arguing otherwise, for a new administration to come in and say, hey, uh, we want our own people on these boards and we are asking you to get off, not limited to just these uh, military advisory boards. So Kellyanne Conway is defiant, President Biden. I'm not resigning, but you should. Uh, she wrote in a letter that three former directors of, pers- of presidential personnel informing this request is a break from presidential norms. It certainly seems petty and political, if not personal. Well, yeah, it is kind of petty and political, but that's not limited to the Biden administration. Trust me on that. Sean Spicer, who has a show on Newsmax, completely went off, said, how dare you question my service in any way? Because Spicer, to his credit, was a member of the Naval Reserve. And even when he was White House press secretary, he would go and do the weekend training when he when the schedule came up for that. And he continued to do it. I remember trying to book him on my show. He said, I can't do it this weekend. I have to be at least on call or part of the training. And Spicer said he's going to join a lawsuit to contest his removal. Okay, so look, whether you think this is petty and shouldn't have been done or whether you think it's the normal course of business, when administration changes hands. Uh, It's also in the interests of Sean and Kellyanne to make an issue out of this. It gets them some press. If they file a lawsuit, if Sean Spicer joins the lawsuit, uh, it underscores, it, it gives them a forum to attack the Biden administration, which I'm sure he'll be more than happy to do. All right, I want to close here with number five, the opening of the trial of Elizabeth Holmes. Now, she became very famous, or infamous, I should say, 
for what she did with the now deceased company Theranos. It was an amazing media story I have to set up. This is the biggest trial in Silicon Valley in a very long time because Elizabeth Holmes is accused of fraud on an immense scale. Theranos was supposed to have developed this miracle test where instead of having to go to a lab, you could just, you know, prick your finger with a little bit of blood and within a few hours you could take it to a drugstore and find out, you know, uh, if you had a, a certain disease or whatever it was being tested for. It turned out to be a scam. And whether it was a criminal scam is what will be decided at this trial. And I'll get into the opening day in a minute. I interviewed the Wall Street Journal reporter who single-handedly broke this story, exposed this scandal. And I had him on Media Buzz, and I gathered up some clips of Elizabeth Holmes being treated like digital royalty. I mean, she went on one show after another, and the, the interviewers were just funny. How did you do it? The fact that she was a striking-looking woman who wore black turtlenecks, which was a kind of a mimic of Steve Jobs, and she spoke in a low voice, a deliberately low voice, that was not her regular speaking voice. And so she was a compelling character, and you had Charlie Rose and all these other people saying, tell us how you did it. How did you manage to come up with this wonderful idea? You were so successful. And it fooled a whole lot of people. And it was difficult, and there were legal threats to sue the Wall Street Journal. Uh, for uh, Cariou was the reporter's name. John Cariou, I believe. The fact that he was able to expose this. On the board of Theranos was George Shultz, the former Secretary of State. Rupert Murdoch was one of the investors. He had all these blue chip names. And Cariou uh, chipped away and chipped away and finally was able to show, to publish a story, a very uh, risky story, to show that Theranos wasn't doing what it claimed to be doing. So at the opening day of the trial, you had the lead prosecutor saying, uh, Assistant U.S. Attorney Robert Leach, telling the courtroom, this is a case about fraud, about lying and cheating to get money. Um, out of time and money, Elizabeth Holmes decided to lie. And she lied again and again and again, the prosecutor said. Now, the defense, Holmes' uh, lawyer said, that Theranos was just like all these other startups that didn't make it. Failure is not a crime. Trying your hardest and coming up short is not a crime, he said on her behalf. So you go back, the backstory here is 2009. Theranos, nobody had heard of Theranos. It was a company with a few small contracts of pharmaceutical companies. Those were beginning to dry up. Pfizer, which had done some work with Theranos, had decided to stop devoting resources to the partnership. Holmes was in danger of not being able to pay her workers. So she was going to go under. She and her then-boyfriend and business partner, Sonny Balwani, who, by the way, is uh, also been criminally charged in the Theranos fiasco and faces his own charge, but secretly, we now learn from uh, Holmes's filing, was her boyfriend. And she may say, oh, she, he was an abusive boyfriend. And I'm not making this up. This comes from the court filing, and that she followed his lead, and it was really his fault. We'll see whether she actually plays that card. But so Elizabeth Holmes and her boyfriend, Sonny, looked to Walgreens and Safeway for money because they have huge pharmacies in the case of Safeway, and Walgreens, of course, is a pharmacy. 
And so she would give these investors exemplary reports, exemplary reports from pharmaceutical companies, including one from Pfizer that the drug company said it hadn't authorized, despite the use of its logo. Falsely told investors in order to raise money that Pfizer had endorsed Theranos' miniature blood analyzer, even though the companies were no longer working together. And this, this piece in the Washington Post reminds us, she was on magazine covers, all these business magazine covers. She spoke at conferences, all these profiles. She was the next Steve Jobs. Quote, this is a prosecutor again, the scheme brought her fame, it brought her honor, it brought her adoration. She had become, as she saw it, one of the most celebrated CEOs in Silicon Valley and the world. But under the facade of Theranos' success, there were significant problems brewing, including the fact that this miniaturization blood test, the lab that she had promised, wasn't working. While claiming it was the technology that her company had developed, she was actually just sending these, secretly sending these blood tests off to other labs to buy time, to stall. Her defense is it was a mistake, she screwed up, but never crossed the line into criminality. The Wall Street Journal first reported this in 2015, these problems with the lab. And then CO, Holmes, she defended herself. Even after the, the story uh, hit the newspaper, she, 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 she trashed the story, she trashed the journal, she said, oh, no, no, we've had some problems, but we're overcoming them. She went on the Today Show in 2016, so this is after the journal expose, and she said she was devastated that the company hadn't found these problems and fixed them earlier, and Theranos was going to rebuild. Well, we all know now that never happened. The company's defunct. The trial is going to be fascinating. Silicon Valley itself, in a way, is on trial, but so really are the media that bought all this garbage and made her into a heroine. Now, of course, Elizabeth Holmes in a very different situation. Nice to have you along for the ride. We try to cast a very wide net here on the podcast. Apple, iTunes, Google Podcasts on your Amazon device. We'd love for you to subscribe. Get this regularly. Uh, tomorrow, I think, is the day we'll probably talk a lot about the 20th anniversary of 9-11 because that day is Saturday. And we'll have a whole lot more. See you then with more Busby. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, subscribe and listen to the Trey Gowdy Podcast. Former federal prosecutor and four-term U.S. congressman from South Carolina brings you a one-of-a-kind podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com.